folks, the first thing that I, I need to bring to your attention is that it is October. And as most of you know, uh, that is the month that is set aside here at Grace Evan for the nomination of, of elders. Um, if you have not been around very long, uh, may I inform you, we have a rotating session. We have 15 elders here at Grace Evan. Uh, five of those men rotate off every year. You serve three years and then you rotate off a year. And so we have five vacancies every year. So uh, those vacancies are filled by uh, men that you nominate. There is no nominating committee. There's no some, not some smoke-filled room where there's um, people uh, manipulating the circumstances. No, you do the nominating and the electing. And the electing, I, I think the, the congregational meeting is on November the 29th, I believe that's right. But it's the, it's the Wednesday night after Thanksgiving. So here are the blue cards. Uh, we have um, cut you shy by one day. Um, uh, but today you can nominate men that you think qualify for the office of elder. Those qualifications are listed on the back. They derive, of course, from First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So um, get to work. Without you, there are no nominees. But you have the whole month to give that thought and prayer and consideration and then nominate um, men to the office of elder. Those blue cards are the form that you use. Well, it's back to uh, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, and we are at, um, I don't know whether it's uh, uh, going to be an interesting evening, but it'll probably be controversial, um, because the, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed goes like this, as you know. I believe in... The, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. <laughs> and that's where we are. Maker of heaven and earth. Um, that is a phrase that confronts us with the issue of origins and authorship. And uh, that is somewhat of a... Of a um, uh, debated issue, at least within, within all circles, actually, but in the Christian circles as well. It is obvious that the authors of the Apostles' Creed were creationists. And, and you say to that, well, of course they were. I mean, the, the Apostles' Creed was written in the second century, and, and they did not have the advantage of Darwin's monumental work of 1852, The Origin of the Species. Some of us would say that that was not an advantage. Um, but what it does, what the Apostles' Creed does face us with is this issue of origins and authorship. And let me tell you of some of the uh, possible explanations as to um, origins and authorship. Uh, one is that of existentialism and nihilism. Um, Frederick Nietzsche you may have heard of who boldly declared, and I quote, God is dead and what is left is the nihil. N-I-H-I-L, the nihil. It's a word that means nothingness. There are no values or purpose except that which we create for ourselves and thus no divine author of anything. So that is, um, that is one explanation that is offered uh, for the origin of things. Uh, there's another man uh, whose name will be more familiar to you, Carl Sagan, who had a TV show for years um, called uh, Cosmos, 
And it started, and I, and I tried to find this exact quote, but I couldn't, I never found it. But it started with something like this. You know, there was this, there was this, um, big music and, 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 uh, uh, a picture of, you know, the stars and, and the, the, uh, the, the statement was something like this. Um, the cosmos is all there ever was or ever will be, period. There is nothing else. That was Carl Sagan's. Um, TV show called Cosmos. Um, another suggestion or explanation as to origins is, of course, the theory of evolution. Um, it is a view which gives more insight into the origin of human existence and um, thus does not leave us in total darkness as to the origin of, of uh, as to our origins and authorship. Man, according to evolution, of course, is the apex of the evolutionary scale of life that emerged out of some sort of primordial slime. Um, it does, however, in its explanation, leave us uh, with an unavoidable philosophy of insignificance by that i mean this Uh, if man begins in slime and is destined for disintegration um, then it is hard to fit some kind of meaning logically anywhere between those two points i began in slime and i'm i'm headed towards disintegration and somehow I'm supposed to find meaning and purpose in life uh, in between those two points. Um, various attempts have been made uh, to develop a sense of ethics and morals and meaning. And, and I would suggest at least philosophically and logically they all have failed. Um, why should grown-up germs be moral? Um, and if the survival of the fittest is a moral, biological mechanism uh, at the center of evolution, then why care at all about such issues like social justice? Or, um, that's kind of a much-used phrase, the uh, term these days. How about slavery? If, if the mechanism by which evolution operates is the survival of the fittest, then why should we even care about slavery? Why should we oppose it? It is certainly consistent with the whole uh, mechanism of the survival of the fittest. Why should we care about genocide? It's just the elimination of the weaker. How is the dignity of man established when um, the beginning is so um, inconsequential and the end is so um, wholesale sadness? Now, let me me pause at this moment... um, with all of that having been said, and I want to hasten to add this. Um, In the last 20, 20, 25 years or so, maybe maybe longer than that, um, there has been another position that has become quite fashionable um, among Christians, in Christian circles, and it is held by some very reliable Believers, um, one such man whose name is Tim Keller that many of you recognize. Um, it is called the old earth view. 
Um, the old earth view is, is, as I understand it, says something like this. Well, not, not like this is pretty much the explanation of the old earth view. That the earth is millions of years old, um, but time, as we know it, begins with the creation of Adam. Um, so Adam is created, not evolved, but the earth into which he was placed is millions of years old. Um, thus, you have an old earth view. Now, that is not my view, um, but I, I do want you to know that there are many who hold it, many reliable um, Believers hold to the, the old earth view. Um, now, let's return to the whole issue of dignity. That is, how is, how is the dignity of man established um, when, when, you, when you start in slime and end in disintegration? There's, it's just hard to, to, to come up with somehow, some way to, to impose dignity. Um, in, um, in a creationist view... Uh, man's dignity is, is derived, it is dependent, it is rooted in the holiness of God, and it is called the Imago Dei. The uh, image bearer of God. Um, in, in a creationist view, that is where dignity comes from. That is how dignity is explained, the Imago Dei. Augustine began his confessions, uh, one of his most famous books, it was called Confessions. He began it with this statement. O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The point that you, I wanted you to hear is thou hast made us for thyself. There is the source and origin of man's dignity. Um, when you seek dignity in yourself, that is apart from the Imago Dei, you risk, at least you risk succumbing to the lie of Satan to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, which is, you know, you shall be as gods. Created man is um, not satisfied with freedom. He, he longs for autonomy, and then he ends up with slavery. Um, now, um, as for the how of creation, um, let me give you three alternatives that are offered. Um, there is this alternative that the world was self-created, which is a logical absurdity, because for something to create itself, it has to be there before it was there. I, ho I hope you got that. Um, before it can create itself, it's got to be there um, before it can create itself. Uh, the, the whole option of self-creation, I, I would suggest to you, is a logical absurdity. Um, uh, the, the second possibility is that the world is self-existent, which means that the world is eternal, and uh, inside it, it contains factors or powers within itself that, that generates... Uh, the present result that you and I now enjoy. Um, and then the third option 
uh, is that the world is created by someone other than itself. And that, that someone is self-existent. Um, if something exists now, and it does, but if something exists now, then something, not the same something, but something always existed. There must be something or someone who is eternal. The issue is not whether someone or something is eternal, but the question is, what is it that is eternal? And the Bible answers that. The Bible answers that the God that God is the um, is the eternal, self-existent one, and claims that He created. Um, the Bible uh, gives us not a description of an origin, but it gives us the how and the who. The who being God, and the how being maybe you've seen this term. Um, how did He create um, ex nihilo? I think it's spelled with a could be nihilo. Ex nihilo from nothing. It's uh, 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 Hebrews eleven three, I think, um, that he created from nothing. That's called ex nihilo, and he created by divine fiat. That is, he spoke things into existence. Okay. With all that said, um, <laughs> let me um, tell you personally some things. I am a creationist. I am a six-day, 24-hour creationist. Um, I do not believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is poetry. Uh, I believe it's history. And I am a six-day, 24-hour um, creationist. Now, that doesn't mean that, that everybody has to share that view. Um, but that's who, what I am. And I want to give you five reasons as to why I am a creationist. Now, let me, let me say this first. Um, this is somewhat risky. I brought all these books out here um, because I want you to know that I'm, I'm going to tell you what my view is, but it's not like um, I haven't read some. Um, all of this um, I have read um, over the issues. I think the, uh, the first one I ever read was this one. Michael Denton's Evolution of Theory and Crisis. Um, this, was, this was really got me going. Uh, this Darwin's Black Box um, uh, is, a, is a piece of genius. It's, his whole um, premise is about irreducible complexity, you may recall. Have you ever read it? It's, it's excellent. <coughs> um, now, I, I show you all of that not to suggest that I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an authority on the subject. I'm not an authority on the subject. I don't claim that. But I, I don't claim to be ignorant either. I don't, I mean, I, uh, some of the reason that I am where I am is because of those books. Um, now, and I, I'm sure that others could debunk, perhaps. Um, but I, I, I at least wanted you to know that I have sought to, and somehow, um, grasp the issue. Now, as a result, uh, I, I've come to this. I am a creationist, as I said, and um, I'm a creationist for these five reasons. Here's reason number one. Um, there have been so many hoaxes 
over the last 150 years uh, uh, perpetrated on uh, the audiences by evolutionary science. This is a book that talks about 10 of them. Uh, 10, um, maybe you were taught about the peppered moths. Remember that one? Or maybe uh, Darwin's finches. Um, All of those things were, were debunked. Why, why did evolution have to produce all of these, this misleading information uh, if, if it was rooted and grounded in, in so much just, uh, scientific fact? Um, maybe you were raised, like I was, um, looking at something like this. Uh, this was the uh, uh, Look magazine, uh, um, The Emergence of Man. Do you know how much uh, fraudulent information is in that thing right here? Just this. Um, uh, with uh, Ramapithecus, um, with uh, Opiltdown Man, Nebraska Man. It is said that the archaeological <coughs> discoveries on which this whole um, line of creatures um, was constructed, that the, that the combined... Uh, evidence for all of this could fit safely on the top of a card table. Like, uh, like one of these men, I mean, they had five teeth, and then they found out that the teeth were from a pig. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm simply saying that there had been so many hoaxes that had been perpetrated on audiences uh, by evolutionary science, and I don't know why you have to do that if you're so um, rooted in, in the truth. Here's the second reason that I am not that I am a creationist. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, by the way, evolution is a theory. It is always going to be a theory. It has always been a theory. It is still a theory. But the second law of thermodynamics is not a theory. It's a law. And that second law describes that everything is moving towards a state of randomness. Things are flying apart. They are not. They're not, it's not moving towards cohesion, it's moving towards randomness. So um, that would overturn the whole idea of things getting arising uh, uh, and getting better and stronger and smarter and uh, more superior. Uh, I think that evolution is a violation of the second law of thermodynamics. Um, uh, thirdly, here's my third reason why I've remained a creationist. Um, it's because there has never been, nor is there today, an explanation about the origin of life. Um, some of you may know of an experiment that was conducted in 1952. It's called the Miller-Urey experiment. Uh, they tried to replicate the atmosphere as it existed pre-life. Uh, they, they put together water and methane and ammonia and hydrogen And they sealed all of that in a five-liter glass flask into which they introduced electrical current um, simulating lightning. And they were trying to discover the chemical origins of life. That experiment produced um, amino acids, five of them. Now, very encouragingly for the evolutionist, the experiment was examined... It was, it was revisited in 2007, and it was concluded that there were 20 more amino acids produced than Miller-Urey recorded. 
So there weren't just five amino acids, there were 25 amino acids that were produced by this experience. Unfortunately, uh, even further and more recent experiments have suggested that the Earth's origin or its original atmosphere might have um, had a composition that was different than the one that Miller and Urey used in their experiment in 1952. Water, methane, gas, ammonia, and hydrogen, it may have been different. So the very premise upon which this was built, uh, it is suggested is wrong. But with all that said, let's say the atmospheres were identical. What this experiment produced was an amino acid, or 25 of them. That is not life, ladies and gentlemen. It's a building blocks of life, but it is not life. It is an amino acid, which is not alive. Okay? So, that's my third reason for not being uh, moving towards evolution. Because no one has ever explained the origin of life. They start, or evolution starts, with life. Well, you've got to explain how that got here. But nobody's ever done that. <clears throat> so, I, I think that's very significant. Fourth, um, there is no proof that I know of um, of macro evolution. Now, folks, do you know that? You know what? Dead gummit. Why don't I always here? Um, macro versus micro evolution. Now, guys, there is all kinds of evidence of this. Let me give you one. Um, how many how many kinds of dogs do we have? Well, we got Great Dane dogs and we got Chihuahua dogs, you know, <clears throat> but they're both dogs. And so, two dogs get together, they mate, and uh, they produce, uh, you know, a Chihuahua, you know, uh, or two Chihuahuas mate and they produce a Great Dane. That's microevolution, folks, and that is that is repeated over and over and over again currently. But no two dogs have ever mated and produced a cat. That's micro. It's, it's not like two fish got together and produced a bird. There is all kinds of um, evolution going on within kinds, within species, because it is bound up in the genetic pool. But there is no evidence of any macro. Now, I, I do know that scientists disagree with me on that. But um, they point to things that are um, my, m- microbial. They're microbes. And they call that, and, and I have not yet conceded, that a microbial ad, uh, example is enough to prove macroevolution. This I'm perfectly comfortable with. Absolutely I believe in that. But I don't but this is the theory of evolution. That you know that uh, two things got you know two canaries got together and had a a turtle. Um, uh, it's it's the difference between small jumps and big jumps. And there is no evidence that I know of um, that demonstrates macroevolution. So, um, so many hoaxes, second law of thermodynamics, no explanation of the origin of life, and macroevolution um, is not uh, out there. 
But here, ladies and gentlemen, is my final, my fifth reason for uh, not being an evolutionist. Uh, to do that would mean that you have to give up a lot of this book. You know, guys, I'm going to sing to you for a minute. Are you ready? Um, I know the words, but we sing this occasionally on Sunday mornings. Um, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. We sing that. Okay, let, let, let's, let's, ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great, and I know that there are those who would say, yes, well, um, you, what, what that means is that God used evolution to create the heavens and the earth. It's called theistic evolution. That God used the processes associated with evolution to produce the heavens and the earth. But for the life of me, I cannot, I cannot find that hinted in that, in that verse. Um, I, I, I mean... <laughs> We don't have a whole lot of time for me to do that, but just reading to you from the book of Jeremiah, of all places. Um, I, I mean, I've got five from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10. Um, it is he who made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding and outstretched arm. Um, chapter 27, um, um, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and I give it to whomever. And let me just read you one more. This is, this is in the book of Acts, um, uh, chapter four, um, and when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Um, I am just not willing to give up those texts and assign them to some kind of evolutionary process. You know, guys, um, many of you know this, but, you know, I read through the Bible, you know, just constantly. And, um, um, you know, I start at Genesis 1-1, then I go to Psalm 1-1, and then I go to Matthew 1-1, and, and then the fourth day I go back to Genesis 3 and 4, and you, know, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's how I read the Bible through. And so what I do is I, if I find texts that are, are like those Jeremiah passages or like the Acts passage, I take it and I put it on page 1. Because it's as if people think that the whole creation story is bound up in Genesis 1. It is not. And if you'd like to come look at the, the number of texts that I've written up here, you're welcome to do that when we're done. Um, 
these things are important to me. The, the, the idea of the hoaxes, the second law of thermodynamics, and the explanation of the origin of life, and the macro, those are important to me. And they give me real intellectual serenity that I have not committed some kind of intellectual suicide to remain a creationist. <clears throat> those things are important. But nothing is as important to me is that I not give up on this book. I want to read you something that I found. And I, when I found it, <laughs> I went down. I was up in my office one morning. When I found this, I went down and grabbed a hold of my wife. And you said, I want to read you. Um, uh, you know, one of my heroes is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is the prince of expositors. There's nobody better handling a text. I, I'll say this again. I've said it, I think, a couple of times. But if you want to get a book and spend the next four years reading it, take your time. The book that has made more of an impact on me than any other book in print is Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Get it and say, okay, I'm going to read. It's like each chapter is like 10 pages. Um, read 10 pages a day. Read 10 pages a week. There's nothing that has so impacted me as has that, that volume on, um, on the Sermon on the Mount. However, this is not from the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of his commentaries in Romans. And I want to read it to you. Uh, it's two paragraphs that I have to read to you. So you have to kind of be patient with me. Lord Jones says, let me give you one illustration to show you what I mean. There are some of us who do not believe in the theory of evolution. We believe that man is a separate and a special creation of God, that he was made in the image of God, that he was perfect and that he fell. Why do I believe that? Because that is what is taught in the Bible and that is what our Lord believed. But you say, what about science? All I say is that science cannot prove anything in this matter at all. It has its theories, but it has no facts. And I am certain of this that the teaching of this book cannot be finally wrong. Now listen to this. If you want an insight to this bumbling idiot up here on the stage, here it is. Now, that is just one illustration in passing of how I shall be called a fool by this so-called scientific age. They regard as a fool... Anyone who dares not believe in evolution as a fact. Incidentally, they are not scientific in doing that. But I'm not concerned about that at this moment. Even if I had no scientific reasons or arguments at all, I must still... Be completely governed by this book. Anything that contradicts this teaching, I must reject. Whatever the world may say about me. That is being a fool for Christ's sake. We are called upon to do that. That is confessing with the mouth. Jesus is Lord. Gang, um, I do have some scientific reasons. And I have read things. I mean, I, I don't know how you gainsay uh, 
this book called uh, Darwin's Black Box. I don't know how you, as an evolutionist, I don't know how, what you have to say to this man. Um, and his, uh, his theory. Yeah, I mean, it's just brilliant. But even if I had none, I cannot give up on this book. You have to give up too much of this book to be an evolutionist. And I'm not willing to pay that price. And so... If it is a fool that I am, I'm very comfortable in that. And just feel sorry for me. But I would suggest to you that the next time that we sing, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth. I would suggest to you. Don't sing it. I believe in the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let's quit. Our Father, I pray that this will be helpful for your people and that you will uh, give them leadership uh, that I can't offer, that they'll be able to uh, sort some of these things out for themselves and bring them uh, to a place of real um, safety and uh, quietude of conscience? Might they be able to um, not simply look at your word, but look at some of these other matters and wonder, uh, how could we have ever bolted from this beautiful, glorious truth that the God who made is the God who spoke by fiat, and call things into being simply by the word of his power, his outstretched arm. It is you, O God, that we worship, you that we adore, and you who we enjoy, uh, and it is you who opened our eyes to see your great, your great glory. Now, Father, uh, enable us to see more of it. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.